Good evening, uh, good evening, everyone. Good evening, uh, good evening, fellow directors, uh, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to Empire Nights. Welcome to the 116th season of the Empire Club of Canada. I'm Mike Van Solen. I'm the president of the Empire Club. I'm the host for today's evening. I appreciate you being out here for the financial services revolution, how blockchain is transforming money markets and banking. I call this meeting to order. We really couldn't do these events without our sponsors who are, uh, whose generosity is critical to uh, pulling events like this together and bringing you all out. I'd like to thank Stiefel GMP, our event sponsor for this evening. I'd also like to acknowledge our events partner at MediaEvents.ca, as well as our media partner, The National Post. Without uh, the support of these great organizations, we couldn't, uh, couldn't host these type of evenings. And I don't know how many of you have been to the Empire Club events. We often do lunch events, but this is an Empire Night event, which is a little bit different than what we typically do. Uh, in many respects, it's a simple idea. Uh, have great, smart people come up to get into a, a topic uh, of interest, uh, give them an opportunity to sort of dig deep uh, over you know, a longer period of time than we often get to do in the age of uh, Twitter and, uh, and you know, fast media. Um, and as well, let's make it a networking opportunity. Let's have a chance to have a, have a drink and some, uh, uh, some food uh, to share that. And then uh, as well, after the, after, the, uh, after the panel, have an opportunity to, uh, again, stick around and talk through the topics that have been discussed. Uh, that's really what Empire Nights are about, and I'm glad you're here to join us for that. Um, so with that, let's kick off uh, today's, today's, uh, today's uh, proceedings. I'd like to call up Harris Fricker from uh, Stiefel GMP to introduce our guest. Thank you. Good evening. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting being here at this time in the, uh, the evolution of blockchain and crypto. Uh, I was one of the crazy, I almost said bastards, but I can't say that here, <laughs> um, individuals uh, who was in Silicon Valley back in 98, 99, 2000s. And there was a wave of euphoria uh, as what Alex and Don would have described as a technology to transform the transmission of information, which became called the Internet. And there was a wave of euphoria at the productivity that could occur with the first step change really since the Gutenberg Press on how information was disseminated broadly uh, in a time-effective fashion to people. And there was there for a period in 2001, 2002, where everybody in the sector was constantly assailed by people outside of the area about, geez, too bad about that internet bubble thing and how the internet's actually never going to really take hold. Most people kind of folded their tent and went home. and. People still ask me today, how was it to live in Silicon Valley back during the internet bubble? And I always go, well, I'm not sure what the bubble was. You know, we, we have 
logistics companies that don't own vehicles that are dominating logistics. We have accommodation companies that don't have a single property that are dominating um, that aspect of the market. We have clearly revolutionized part and parcel of society, of business, and all other aspects through the first wave of the internet, which was the transformation of the dissemination of information. So as I got to know Alex and, and, and his father, Don, who have done great work at the Blockchain Research Institute, the thing that really captivated me was their reference to if the first wave of the internet was the transformation of the transmission of information, then what are the implications of a new structure called blockchain that transformed the transmission of value. And if Gutenberg was the guy, the last major step changer, um, you'd have to go back a couple hundred years in the world of accounting for the last major step change in the transmission of value. And of course, the heady days of uh, late 17 and 18 gave way to what is now viewed as the bust of blockchain. And everybody goes up, goes around and says, hmm, too bad about that blockchain thing. We had such promise. Everybody was talking about it. And I would say to you that this is entirely akin to the early 2000s. The, the, the sizzle and the smoke and the early on hangers-on and adopters, some of whom were not terribly well-intentioned, uh, have gone away. And the people left are people like Alex Tapscott, um, who still believe fundamentally in the transformative power of blockchain and its impact uh, on the transmission of value which I believe will absolutely change the way uh, business is done. Uh, and Alex's book on financial services, after I left Silicon Valley, I was crazy enough to enter the world of financial services here in Canada and had, ha had a front row seat on the transformation of that industry. And I thought we had seen change till I read Alex and Don's first book. And then after a very cold shower and a very large glass of good red wine, I said, boy, the trend is coming and it's going to make what I saw in Silicon Valley in five years starting in 98 um, look like a firecracker. So Alex is a speaker um, he's a venture capitalist. Uh, he has the courage to put forward ideas even when the general public has come to believe those ideas are no longer relevant. They're completely wrong. Blockchain has moved into what I call the infrastructure phase. First you get the sizzle, then you have to build the plumbing. And ladies and gentlemen, unless you're a plumber, plumbing ain't sexy. Without plumbing, worlds don't get changed. We're in the plumbing section of the blockchain phase. Uh, I salute Alex. 
and uh, of course Don, uh, for keeping the faith and you folks here. This really will change everything. Um, and I can't think of a more powerful and eloquent adequate, adequate advocate via his book, his new book, um, to continue to articulate, enunciate, and more frankly, just keep people calm. <laughs> There's, this is going to be a really good thing. And uh, as I said, I can't think of a more articulate advocate for what's coming than uh, my friend Alex Tapshaw. Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you, Harris, for that wonderful introduction. Harris failed to mention that early on, after he had that cold shower and big glass of red wine, his firm, GMP, got to work, uh, becoming, edu uh, becoming educated on this technology on the space. And they've been really instrumental in helping to incubate and fund some of the most important companies in Canada that are trying to bring about this revolution. And you'll hear from one of those entrepreneurs that worked with GMP in, uh, in a moment. I'd also like to thank the Empire Club for hosting this event. This is a, a very good turnout. Are you sure, are you sure you're not here for the, uh, the Harry and Meghan speech? Which <laughs> I hear that's next week. So um, the Empire Club is one of these old historic institutions. You know, we don't have big institutions in Canada. They've been along for a long time. But uh, I think the Empire Club's like 140 years old. It's not called the Commonwealth Club for a reason. Um, because it uh, dates back to the British Empire. So I'm thinking now that Harry and Meghan are residents, they, you should uh, get them on stage. I'd be happy to interview them. Um, I can do a fluff interview, or we, can, or we can get right into the blockchain with them, see how they think about that stuff. Um, so just to give you a, a run of events, I'm going to speak for uh, a short period of time here, and then we're going to bring up this expert panel of people who are doing great things in the space, because I think that's that's who everybody wants to hear from. Um, Harris quite eloquently framed the discussion by describing how we're entering into this new era. So the first digital age was the age of information, right? The big technology that transformed business and society was the internet. And now we're entering into this new phase where there are all sorts of technologies that people are very excited about. Artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, technology in our bodies, clean tech, um, but there's one technology in particular that's going to have a bigger impact on the world of business and on our everyday lives than those others, and it's uh, blockchain technology. So if the first era of the internet was about the reinvention of information, the second era of the internet is going to be about the reinvention of capital. And it turns out that industries that interact with capital are much larger and more influential and more powerful than information industries. And as the old saying goes, money makes the world go round. So let me explain what I mean by this. When you use the internet today to send and move and share information, you're not sending an original unique thing. You're sending a, a version or a copy, and you're retaining an original. So if I send you know, an email to one person, I can send the same email to someone else. If I put something on Twitter, it's available for all to see. It makes the internet like uh, a sort of a printing press for information, uh, you know, in the same way that the Gutenberg uh, printing press allowed us to disseminate paper. The internet allows individuals to become their own publishers. And that's a very cool and interesting idea, except when it comes to things that have value, assets, money, capital, 
being able to send versions or copies is actually a terrible idea. So if instead of an email, it's money that I owe you and I send it to you, it's important that you know that you have the only version and that I can't send the same version to someone else. Because if I can copy money in the same way that I can copy information, the money come, becomes worthless. And as an aside, I might end up in jail. And I want to avoid going to jail if I can. So it's great to have a printing press for information, not so with money and capital. So with blockchain, we have this new medium for value. And for those of you who are familiar with it, basically, instead of having a trusted intermediary sit in the center, uh, establish identity of parties, maintain records, main, uh, handle contracting, payments, processing, settlement, and all the other business logic, it's done through a decentralized network that uses uh, consensus and some clever code. And this is a really important thing, because financial intermediaries still basically control big swaths of the economy. In fact, there are these new intermediaries which have emerged from the internet that command an even greater share of our economic lives and our time online than ever before, the, uh, the FANG stocks. But really, they're the MAGA stocks, um, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And intermediaries do a pretty good job, um, but they have some very specific limitations. They're centralized, which makes them vulnerable to attack. They use old legacy systems, which slows things down. They exclude big parts of the population. There's about a billion people who don't have access to financial services. Uh, and most troubling, they capture all this data about us. And that's troubling because it means that we can't use that data to organize our lives. It means that uh, we can't monetize it. It's worth a lot of money. Just look at the market cap of the biggest tech companies in the world. That's built on your data. And uh, it could potentially end up in the wrong hands. So with blockchain, we have this new platform for organizing value, not just information. And it turns out that's going to have a big impact on a lot of industries. So it's one of these things where people try to figure out, well, how do I think about this thing? You know, I've heard of Bitcoin. Who's heard of Bitcoin? I'm just kidding. You've all heard of Bitcoin. <laughs> it's that thing that uh, criminals and drug dealers use to buy uh, guns on the internet. Um, no. Some criminals use Bitcoin. Uh, apparently, about 1% of Bitcoin is used by criminals, but 3% of cash is used by criminals. So what's the better technology? Um, <laughs> no, it, it is a currency. Uh, but what's more interesting is the technology which makes it possible. And it turns out the blockchain, which makes Bitcoin work, can actually work for basically any kind of asset. And it turns out that financial services has a lot of assets, right? Stocks, bonds, titles, deeds, properties, derivatives, uh, and so on and so forth. And every aspect of the industry is going to be transformed. So in the book that you have, we walk through all of the nine different aspects of what the financial services industry does. Everything from working to establish identity, you know, KYC and AML, uh, moving value, uh, storing value, uh, connecting entrepreneurs with sources of investment, credit markets, you know, your mortgage, all the way up to the governments that borrow money, uh, exchanging value, creating marketplaces to you know, exchange securities, uh, audit, accounting, risk management, insurance, and so forth. Every one of those things is going to be transformed by blockchain. I'm only going to talk about just a couple right now. Um, the first one is moving value, you know, very exciting, sexy, what have you. Um, this is actually a very important thing, because every single day, trillions of dollars moves around the world. And it moves through systems that are built with technology that's older than I am. Um, and probably older than most of you, for that matter, uh, technology that was built in the 1970s and, 19, and early 1980s. And there's these new kinds of um, technologies which are coming to take its place. So 
Bitcoin was this currency that came out of the internet. It was bred from the grassroots. It was a community project. And what's so amazing about it is that it's worked. And it's worked so well that it's got people excited in other parts of the economy. And there are these two kind of big actors out there that all of a sudden are paying attention. The first is the private sector, large corporations, and the even bigger one is governments. So one of the inventions of blockchain is a thing called a stablecoin. And a stablecoin is basically a way to move value peer-to-peer -peer in an asset which is benchmarked to um, something that's familiar, say a US dollar or you know, an ounce of gold or something like that. And right now, stablecoin volumes are now surpassing the volumes of all other cryptocurrencies. So naturally, Facebook uh, decided to do its own stablecoin, this thing called Libra. So Libra is this project that launched last year. And Facebook basically created it to bring financial services to the masses. And it's an interesting idea. There are a lot of parts of the world where people don't have access to a bank account, but where they have access to a Facebook account. And you can imagine in you know, places like Africa, people may be leapfrogging altogether existing banking infrastructure, kind of in the same way that in India, there were 30 million landlines um, when cell phones were introduced. There are still 30 million landlines, but there are 1.2 million cell phone users. So existing technology and existing systems and existing industries can be uh, displaced. Now, Facebook is not without uh, its well-deserved criticism. You might argue, you know, we, we couldn't trust you with our data, and now you want us to trust you with our money? No thanks. Um, but we shouldn't dismiss it out of hand, because this is a powerful innovation which could disrupt the industry. And you know, it's amazing to think about. JP Morgan, for example, big, huge bank, 70, 80 million customers. If 10% of Facebook's global users were to switch this on and use Libra, it'd be the biggest bank in the world by a factor of two or three, which is an interesting thought. Uh, governments, so the Central Bank of China announced that it is going to make blockchain a priority along with artificial intelligence for their next five-year plan. And one of the big portions of that plan is to introduce a central bank digital currency. And this is a very interesting and also deeply troubling idea. You know, the government of uh, China is working very hard to eliminate cash, you know, bearer instruments, out of the economy because it's hard to trace cash. It's a lot easier to trace something that's on the internet. And so in the same way that they've introduced a social credit score to keep an eye on the behavior of individuals, they can now extend that um, by introducing a currency. And I think that is an example that illustrates why this isn't all a big panacea, right? This isn't all you know, sun and roses and happiness. There's always a downside to technology, and there are implementation challenges of making that happen. And in fact, in the original book that Don and I wrote together, Blockchain Revolution, we had a chapter called uh, Implementation Challenges, you know, Reasons Blockchain Could Fail. And there are a lot of them. You know, will governments co-opt it and use it for the wrong kinds of ends? Will uh, incumbents try to crush it? Will uh, criminals use it and will that undermine confidence? Will the technology not scale? Is it not ready for prime time? All of these kinds of issues are reasons, I think, to uh, be concerned. But you have to ask yourself, are they just reasons to be concerned or are they reasons to say this is not a good idea, we should put it aside, forget about it? Um, and I think in each of them, they're an implementation challenge. And they should be overcome because there's an opportunity here to uh, rewrite the economic power grid and the old order of human affairs and to build a more fair, inclusive financial system. So I, I spoke at the very beginning about the reinvention of capital. And it's interesting because you could say that the past 30 years have been defined by the rise of the internet. We're at the beginning of the 2020s. And a lot of people are talking about these 2020s as being 
roaring 2020s, just like the roaring 1920s. And I actually think that the reinvention of capital is going to be the most disruptive force that causes this to be a truly roaring decade. But the question is, is the decade going to end in a crash, like the 1920s did, um, and is this going to be a part of it? Or can we harness this technology in a way where we're able to use it for uh, productive and positive ends? Um, can we make a, a future that's brighter? Can we make a financial industry that's fairer, safer, more inclusive, more efficient, um, and more private for individuals? So we'll see. But that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, I really encourage you to, uh, to take a look at the book and read about this space and to get involved. You know, the future is not something to be predicted. Uh, after all, it's something to be achieved. And it's up to all of us to achieve that. So thank you very much. And uh, we'll introduce our panel now. So thank you. Okay. You know what? I, I know these people. I don't really need a piece of paper. So um, Cole Diamond is the CEO of CoinSquare. Uh, Cole's one of the early leaders in this industry. He's built an amazing company employing over 100 people here in Toronto. Um, he's one of the leaders that's making this happen. Fatima Perone, uh, inside of CIBC, leads their innovation efforts. Thank you. We're doing the conga line around the, uh, around the room. Uh, Fatima Perone, who leads the innovation efforts at CIBC, they've done a lot of really interesting projects, including um, areas around I digital identity. And I spoke about privacy um, earlier, so we'll get into some of that. And of course, Richard Carlton is the CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange. Um, which is one of the leading um, venues for startups and great uh, new industries. And I think that's really important. Um, they've been a leader in a lot of different new industries in technology and cannabis and so forth. And blockchain is a big focus uh, as well. And unlike uh, a lot of other venues who are just interested in listing the companies, um, Richard and his team are you know, eating their own pudding, and they're actually thinking about how we could use this technology to reinvent the securities industry, uh, which is really commendable and fascinating. OK, so good. Um, let's kick things off uh, with a discussion about, um, well, Cole, how about you? So right now. Actually, before we do me, can we just another round of applause for you? Because that was an excellent introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'll pay you after the. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, this mic is still on. Sorry. Um, all right, cool. Well, let's start with you. So, um, CoinSquare is a company that um, you launched effectively um, in 2017, and it's grown to be you know, the largest, most well-recognized venue in Canada um, for cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. Um, but I know you've got plans for this company beyond that. So. Um, can you talk about how CoinSquare fits into the context of uh, building you know, a new financial industry in Canada? Uh, well, it's a loaded question, Alex, because I have uh, unlimited opportunity, and what goes with that is about 10 times the amount of challenges, uh, particularly because we are in Canada. Um, and what I have to sort of shed light on uh, is the CSA guidance that came out three weeks ago where for the last 26 months, I've been working with the OSC, and for the last 12 months, I've been working with IROC to help them develop a new framework for digital assets. 
And then they put out a consultation, or they put out a, uh, a guidance from the Canadian Securities Administrator that effectively says that we're subject to securities regulation and that we're subject to securities regulation retroactively. So I'm putting you all on notice that I'm likely going to be arrested soon for breaching securities laws over the past three years. Uh, but the other thing that I'm noting is the fact that uh, innovation is likely uh, about, is now under threat in Canada, particularly in this space. Um, but the way we viewed the opportunity prior to that guidance and the fight that we're in now and will be over the coming months and potentially years in order to unlock opportunity is very much focused on trying to unlock an opportunity that is unique in Canada, that gives Canada an opportunity to lead, to create a true 21st century financial institution that gives control back to consumers over their finances and access to opportunities that they're generally locked out of. And the way we're doing that, or the way we hope to be able to do that, by having the regulatory framework in place that we need to be successful, is by putting together a single structure that enables the listing, trading, clearing, settlement, and custody of multiple asset classes all under one structure and therefore held in one single wallet. Okay? So what I'm talking about is not that inconvenient process you have to go through when you're at CIBC or at Royal Bank. <laughs> Or when you're like, oh, I'm looking at my bank accounts and I can see my stocks, but then when I want to click to access my stocks, I got to go over to that other platform. Or when I want to move money from my bank account into my stock account and wait while I'm watching Tesla stock go up like 3% every minute and I want to buy it and I can't buy it. Or when I've got Tesla stock, but I don't have any cash and I want to go to a store and I want to buy something but I can't buy something without selling my Tesla stock and moving it back into my bank account to pay for it, but that settlement is T plus two days, and it's Friday, so that really means next Wednesday. This is a very specific example. Is, have you? <laughs> Thanks, Cole. This sounds like, is this your afternoon? <laughs> um, this is what we're working on fixing. But Cole, let's, let's pause for a second and break it down. So you're talking about a, a user interface um, challenge problem, um, but then there's also a back-end technology problem. Like, couldn't CIBC just... Sorry, Fatima is yeah. not CIBC. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't Bank X uh, just fix, the, fix their mobile banking platform? Do they need to, you know, use? <laughs> do they need to use the technology? Why, how, sure. What's the crypto blockchain component of that? Well, the crypto blockchain component of that is the ability to be interconnected, not just within Canada but globally. Right. And that's the critical point. Um, at the end of the day. And, I, and, and if you would have given me another 45 minutes to tell my story, I would have gotten to that. Well, Empire Club, if you've got any uh, vacant slots in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> is available. Well, so Fatima, let's talk about that. Sorry not to put you on the spot, but um, you know, banks, um, a lot of banks pay lip service to innovation. Some of them are actually doing really interesting things, and I think CIBC is one of those banks. Um, so can you talk about um, the kinds of projects that you're working on and the, the challenges that you face, whether it's, you know, an it doesn't have to be an internal challenge. I mean, is technology, you know, business planning uh, strategy to actually move um, innovation forward inside that kind of environment? Yeah. Truth be told, innovation is quite difficult to do, right? Um, in order to move anything forward, it takes uh, a lot of effort to convince a lot of people. And when you work in a big bank, that's a lot, a lot of people. Um, but what we've been trying to do is really 
identify the challenges, exactly the same challenges that Cole is referring to, and really prioritizing them and, and demonstrating the benefit that we could have by solving them through emerging technologies such as blockchain. And it is true, blockchain does uh, solve a lot of those problems, but the challenge really becomes is in which stage of understanding we are at and how we can apply it. Um, if you think about financial uh, industry and how we adopted to something simple as cloud technology, it took us over 10 plus years to even adopt to that and we still have ways to go. And I would put blockchain sort of on the same realm, but we're in the infancy stages. We're trying to figure it out, line up the benefits and really make a use case for it and take one step at a time to uh, solve for those. And Cole also referred to some of the other challenges that we have is around regulatory support. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a very difficult conversation at the bank when we don't have the right regulatory support um, to do things like crypto wallets and et cetera. And you know, as banks, we are quite conservative. So it gets really put on the back burner until we have some clear answers around it. Yeah. But uh, to be honest, when uh, actually Farah from my team is sitting there and she, she goes around the bank and she shops for problems. We have a slew of list of problems. We know that this could solve. It's a matter of uh, getting together and actually doing that. Yeah. So um, I think of the, that's very interesting. I think of the, the challenges of doing this sort of threefold, right? What are the technology limitations? Yeah. Uh, what are the business limitations? You know, there's a, there isn't a real issue in financial services where if you're the only company that's using something, it's actually not quite as useful if everybody's using exactly. it. Exactly. Financial technology benefits from network effects like a lot of other technologies do. Uh, but the recurring theme between both of you has been on the regulatory side. So Richard, um, care to make it three for three? How, how is the, your efforts to you know, move ahead with security tokens, um, the idea that we have you know, $100 trillion of equities in the world and they're all basically traded on legacy systems, we can do things better. So how are those efforts um, coming along? What challenges are you facing? So I guess the, uh, if we can state the problem a, a couple of ways. The first one is in Canada and the United States in particular, we have an ever-declining number of public companies in the, in the markets. The numbers are, are actually kind of shocking, that if it wasn't for the uh, ETFs and structured products that were coming in uh, to the TMX group exchanges, Nick, uh, the actu actual number of corporations that have raised money from the public has dropped 20 30% in the last decade. And meanwhile, we've seen more and more opportunities, especially in the early stage of the life cycle of some of these very innovative and high-growth companies are falling to private equity and venture capital that are shut out from 99.9% .9 of the population. I mean, these are really opportunities that are only open to not the 1%, but the 0.1%. So what we're looking to do is address the cost and risk issues that are pushing those investment opportunities to the private side and ideally bring them back into the public markets where everybody has an opportunity to invest in these uh, growth stories the way that people in the 1970s were able to invest in Apple and Intel and Cisco and, and so on. And so I guess the, 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 the main uh, area that uh, we're looking at addressing is the cost of the legacy systems that you talked about. Mm -hmm. Cole cited T plus two to get your money out of the system. That's ridiculous that we're in that situation in 2020. And so using a security token, the distributed ledger technology, which uh, we connect the, uh, the broker-dealers, we think that we can move clearing to effectively real-time and settlement at worst case end of day uh, is, what, uh, is what we're working towards. But more importantly, from an investor and an, and a, and an issuer perspective, we want to be able to 
eliminate all the cost and friction and risk and mistakes associated with entitlements management. So right now, a company that pays a dividend pays a transfer agent, pays CDS, who pays the dealer who puts it into the account and loses about 25% of it on the way. Right? And everybody's taking a slice. So why can't a company actually, with a stable coin, some kind of digital currency, why can't we just flow that right through the distributed ledger to the client uh, who's the ultimate uh, beneficial owner? And what that will do is well, open why, up. Why can't you? Like, what is the limitation then? Because well, the technology exists. We're, we're, built, we're, we're building it. Yeah. The, the, the tricky part, of course, is the last mile from the wallet that we're, we, we will be looking to give to the dealer and their legacy uh, client account management systems. Mm -hmm. Now, as we've peeled the layers off of this onion over the last uh, year and a half or so, it turns out there are fewer barriers than we thought. And uh, we're making excellent progress uh, with a lot of support from the dealer community to do this. But what this will open up is all kinds of products which get done, again, in the private equity side. Mining royalties, right? Issuers right now, if, you, if you're trying to raise a couple hundred million dollars to put a property into production, have got six investors in the world to go to yeah. in order to get that money. How good of a deal do you think they cut that mining company? They absolutely killed them. Yeah. But if that mining company can take that deal to the public, a solid, secured, income-producing security, the price is going to be so much, they're, they're going to realize a much better price, and we're going to reverse that trend of a declining number of investment opportunities for everybody, mm -hmm. and in fact, democratize the capital markets or return to a better place uh, in the, in the capital markets. Well said. He uh, forgot to talk about his regulatory problems. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite, but you see, Cole quite was artfully yeah, ducked Cole, that one. Cole, Cole bit off way more than we did. And so <laughs> we're attempting really to work within the system and not take on the client-facing responsibilities of KYC, AML, and so on, and effectively act as a broker. So we're still in the background, as Harris said, building that plumbing, but only a little bit of that plumbing uh, with our partners on the uh, on, on the dealer side, so mm -hmm. we're maybe changing the world, but we're not looking to maybe take on as much of the world as uh, as uh, Cole is at this point. <laughs> Do you want to respond to that? <laughs> wish me wish wish me well. <laughs> I would say Cole has been working inside of the system. The system just keeps changing the rules. <laughs> um, Okay, great. Well, that was really interesting. I mean, Richard, the, on the securities token issue, um, you know, people are, so when I think about financial services sort of writ large, um, there are people who talk about the opportunity to, to cut costs and reduce the complexity from how, you know, existing markets work, right? We could shave uh, a bunch of costs out of how, you know, the equities market clears and settles transactions. And, and that's all very well and interesting, but when new technologies come along, oftentimes they don't just make an old industry more efficient, they transform it or eliminate it altogether. So it's hard to cut money out of the clearing and settling of equities when broker dealers and exchanges and custodians and so forth don't play a role <laughs> in that market at all. And um, you know the ICO boom that happened in 2017 is much maligned, and I think that's mostly because of the failure of some projects, but the underlying idea was quite fascinating. Um, and the issue with them is that these projects were issuing a native token, some kind of digital asset that was part of you know, their uh, project, but it didn't actually represent ownership. It wasn't equity, it wasn't a share. And they probably would have been a lot better off if they had issued equity or shares in their company. 
And what's fascinating to me about that is that you can tap into this global market of you know, angel investors who can put in dollar values, big and small, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world, if you have a good idea and you can market it effectively, you can launch a company. So to me, that represents the beginning of sort of the halcyon days of, of entrepreneurship, and that to me is really exciting. And I hear that in your remarks, especially around the lack of investment opportunity. Uh, I mean, if PE and royalties and um, venture capital investors increasingly um, fall to the hands of the few, and I think that's true, then more and more Canadians will have less of an opportunity to build real wealth for themselves and participate fully in the benefits of capitalism. So, I mean, I, I think the, the, the mission is an important one, and I'm glad that you're pursuing it. Um, so, uh, what's your view on Libra, Cole? Uh, well, uh, aside from Mark Zuckerberg being a fascist, <laughs> uh, my view is that I'm overwhelmingly jealous of the opportunity that Facebook has because Facebook has the users. And what we all want as entrepreneurs is the users. I think Libra in itself is fundamentally flawed. I think that that's come out uh, very clearly from the response uh, that we've seen since all these uh, great companies uh, came on uh, to the project at the early days. There were a number that even after some of the issues that they had with the US Congress continued to stay on, but have since released reports talking about some of the flaws in the business model, which by the way, uh, is pretty consistent with most, uh, speaking of the ICO market, uh, it's pretty consistent with the flaws that we saw in the ICO market, because even for those projects that weren't frauds, um, the structure of the tokens that they issued were flawed fundamentally, which is why you've seen such declining value in, the, in those assets. But going back to Libra specifically, the concept that uh, you've got this global network where people are already connected, two point something billion people, um, and you've got uh, a stable coin, which I don't agree with the structure, but that's okay, that's gonna move to connect them. Um, I actually think is an overwhelmingly positive on-ramp for the industry when it gets launched. Um, and so as much as I wish I was in Mark's position because it's instant success for blockchain and digital assets, um, I believe we're going to be in a position to really be able to take advantage of it. And not just us, but really any, every entrepreneur, every project in the space. You'll see explosive growth when Libra goes live. Um, but I don't believe that Libra is... Uh, if I mean, Libra goes live. If Libra goes yeah. I believe it will go live. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it will uh, be as uh, sexy as they initially pointed out. And I, and I can't speak to what it inevitably it'll look like. But Mark's intent on making sure that it does not fail, so I don't believe it will fail. He's got enough power to make sure that it doesn't. But when it does go live, it will be a massive catalyst for the space. And it will help people truly understand what it means because at the end of the day, the people are already connected. So many people, the heavy, heavy, heavy majority of people that have bought digital assets have bought it without use cases associated. Now, everybody that will be buying Libra or buying into Libra and the offering that Libra presents are instantly connected to a network that has immediate use case. And therefore, it validates the market. It provides that on-ramp and that education that the market needs to thrive. I cannot wait for it to go. Um, but I do not think uh, that it is going to be the driving force towards long-term innovation in the space. Uh, I do think it will be the catalyst for growth of the space. So it's a double-edged sword in that Facebook, a company that already today um, has a trust problem with people, is going to amass more power, perhaps that's not a good thing. On the other hand, 
uh, having this universal medium of exchange, which is, could be widely used by billions of people, could be a catalyst for growth of other companies that do make things more fair, more democratic, and so forth. Definitely. Is that a fair description? Uh, definitely. I mean, I mean, depending on you know, how your politics work, you know, who do you want to have more power, Donald Trump in the central bank or Mark Zuckerberg in the legal front? <laughs> what a shitty option. Shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it might not be so horrible. I don't but know if I'm allowed to say that at the it's end. It's certainly, uh, it's, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. at a club like this, I wouldn't take a political position unless it was conservative, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, very interesting. Well, there's another aspect of Libra which doesn't get as much play, but um, there are a lot of parts in the world where people you know, have money, but they don't have a bank account. They keep it under their bed, and they have to take it physically where they go to pay for things, and there's risk and danger that goes along with it, and there's a central bank that can print money willy-nilly, and there's loans owed to the IMF and so forth, which can collapse the value of the currency, and all of a sudden, this thing can come along uh, and uh, the way Facebook's Libra works is it's a stablecoin ba based on a basket of traditional currencies, which is basically a form of hard dollar currency. Um, and so all of a sudden, if you're living in India, where they took rupees out of circulation and you know, collapsed the economy momentarily, um, that uh, you may decide this is a better option than what the government has. And uh, all of a sudden, the government loses its lever over the, mo over the money supply, over monetary policy, and over the economy. And so the, the, uh, the blowback or the conflict that could happen from that will be really interesting. Another theme of the roaring 2020s, uh, which you can read about in Financial Services Revolution. Um, Fatima, so one of the reasons that people are a little wary about these central bank digital currencies, these uh, private sector initiatives, is this issue of identity and privacy. Mm -hmm. And that's been a big cornerstone of the work that you've done. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the project that we discussed in the webinar um, around um, virtual identity for, for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a unique opportunity for all of the financial institutions in Canada to sort of come together and solve a problem that we're all facing. And actually, it expands beyond financial industry. You think about authentication, um, email addresses and passwords, and how many hundreds you have as an individual. And then when you're trying to do anything more complex where you need to prove who you are and you need to provide more information, uh, you're doing a lot of archaic thing like bringing printouts from your bank and perhaps faxing things. And all of that uh, creates a whole a lot of risk around your identity and your personal information and doesn't give you any control of that. So a digital identity solution that's built on blockchain puts the control back on the client's hands. They're able to see where it goes they can choose who it's going to go to and how it's going to be utilized. And blockchain provides that level of privacy and security that you need around uh, something as valuable as someone's identity information. And then you can use, utilize it across uh, multiple industries. So it's not just limited to financial industry. I do think for Canada, it was quite important for us to come up with a solution that's really able to address that. You know, you spoke about AML and KYC would solve that for you as well. Um, now it's the question around adoption. How do you educate the population and how do you get various types of industries and companies to really start utilizing the solution that's in market? Right, um, there's this theme in Canada, I think most people here are Canadian work in the financial system in Canada, uh, around this question of open banking yeah. um, and how much information a financial institution can share about a customer with another financial right. institution and people a lot of people, not everyone, think it's a good idea that they should share more information because it means that they'll be able to access better, cheaper, different financial services. 
Um, but there's also a concern about your information being misused or ending up mm -hmm. in the wrong hands. And um, the way you, you described it, there's sort of this choice between um, a corporate bank-led identity initiative, um, and banks in Canada are large, trustworthy institutions, um, or the government. Mm -hmm. um, but isn't that a, a false dichotomy in the sense that can't there be a third option where individuals have sovereignty over their own information, and they're the ones who can share it with any inst financial institution to get services, or they can share it their health data if they want to participate in a study or maybe make money from it or, or something like that. Um, why isn't that an option, or is it? I think it's, it's a good concept, but there's a couple of issues when you think about how you actually um, productionalize that, mm. right? Uh, at this point, the financial institution did take a bet on this, and they invested uh, into building that infrastructure. When you're looking at a solution like that for individual, it begs the question, who's going to build it? It could be Mark Zuckerberg. Probably likely would be if the Canadian banks didn't do it. And then you as an individual would have to choose who do you trust more. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we would try to solve from a Canadian perspective is really ensure that we are building that privacy um, and client control perspective that's important. When you use your driver's license today at LCBO, the government has no idea that you pulled out your card there. Wanted to make sure that that level of privacy is given and that is what we built. And so we hope that that is what Canadians end up adopting. I'm just not sure how far out it would have been to wait for another solution that gave that true freedom to clients to do mm -hmm. that on an individual level. The other factor is that you are getting this information from a trusted source. So end of the day, whoever's accepting this data has to also trust the system and know that, okay, uh, we can trust the source that the data is coming from, and the only way to do that is that someone in the middle is actually authenticating and ensuring the parties that are participating are allowed to participate. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we're eliminating that fraud risk. So that's, okay, so staying on that for a second, yeah. um, the digital identity initiative that you're participating in is something that all the banks, Correct. or not all the banks, but a bunch of them have got together, and there's this vendor which is facilitating it. But, but this thing doesn't exist unless everybody buys in. Um, is that a theme that you think is true for all kinds of innovation? Is there anything you can go at it alone? Or are all of these things like Interac, like your identity system and so forth, projects which require collaboration? Is blockchain a team sport or can it be uh, a one-man show? No, it's a team sport. 100%. And, and you, know, you touched on open banking, you touched on a whole bunch of different things. You can do it as an individual. You could try. End of the day, your competitors are going to do the exact same thing. They're going to spend a whole bunch of money, and probably none of us did it well. If you actually collaborate and you do it together, you can build something that works for everyone. Everyone gets to participate, and it's probably done much better. You know, If you think about the technology teams and the security teams that were involved in initiatives like that, you have seven times the manpower than you would have done as an individual. Mm -hmm. And, so, what, yeah. would the Canadian banks get together to create a Canadian dollar stablecoin, or you know, a, a basically a digital fiat currency, or is that something you want the Bank of Canada to handle as, I, as I, the monopoly on? No, that I think there's business? an opportunity for the banks to come together on that. Um, CABC is participating one on a global spectrum, so yeah. the USC initiative, which is kind of comes together. It's a similar. Um, value point, and I think the Canadian banks have an opportunity to do so too. I was speaking to a Norwegian bank not too long ago. 
one of the unique things they've done in Norway, and Norway is quite advanced when it comes to adapting all types of technology, including digital identity, which they have, what, 98% penetration rate, hmm. and they can do a mortgage approval in less than 20 seconds. And great pickled herring also. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know about the pickled herring, but okay. Uh, <laughs> but you know. It's uh, an ancient technology, but it's very, right. very effective. <laughs> Uh, what, what they have actually done is that they collaborate on things that they think is beneficial to all of the FIs together. Yep. Um, so they have created a, a sort of an innovation hub. They pick ideas that they think is going to solve problems that are universal for all of them, and they all invest together. And that's how they're getting advanced. Yeah, well, I mean, I think about Interact, for example. Yep. Um, but you know, there's a lot more transactions that settle in Canadian dollars than just what runs through the Interact network. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the size, but it's something like $13 billion? A year or something. Um, probably right. Yeah, um, you know, so it's like fifty bucks a person yeah. or something in Canada, so it's not small. But um, you know, if you think about international transfers, if you think about remittances, if you think about uh, clearing and settling of securities, um, you know, interbank transfers and so forth, um, there would be an opportunity to build uh, an interact on steroids that is basically a crypto fiat currency, a stablecoin of, of some kind. And Richard, I mean, that, that would be enormously helpful in your world to to make securities truly digital. Um, is that if the settlement rail didn't have to connect to the old system, if you had a native digital settlement rail. Um, yes? Native or, digital settlement rail. Wow, okay. Well, digitally native. Yeah, no, I, you, you know, you, you, you're absolutely right. right? But, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to have to, in the meantime, invent a lot of this stuff yeah. because it doesn't exist yet, yeah. in a, at least on a standardized uh, basis, although... Plumbing, I think. Uh, plumbing, yes. Which is a good way to but, describe uh, it. But no, I, my, my buzz phrase actually is digital currency representation, but okay. Okay. Fine. Well, native digital... <laughs> <laughs> we could both be wrong on this. <laughs> yeah, could be. Um, okay, so uh, we want to get back to socializing and, and having a good time, but I want to ask a couple questions. Just going to go, uh, the question for everyone. So um, lightning round this year, 2020, what is the thing that you're um, most excited about in your field as it relates to blockchain? <laughs> Just in case you're having a baby or something, you can't say that. <laughs> um, as it relates to blockchain. So Richard, start. Uh, well, we'd love to uh, get uh, our project off the ground, uh, get our first uh, tokenized security listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange and uh, see it uh, trading, clearing, and settling. Um, it's going to be a challenge to get there within 11 months, but uh, certainly by early 2021, I think we'll be there. Okay. Fatima? Um, so I'm quite excited about using this digital identity solution verified me to solving actually internal issues that we have from ML, KYC, um, solving authentication in branches, all these reference around putting in the plumbing and now being able to utilize it. Um, I feel a little bad. I normally fall asleep when my husband makes all these plumbing jokes because he's a plumber. Um, but you know, today I, today I'm on board. Okay. <laughs> I'll refrain from any plumbing <laughs> jokes. Uh, Cole? Uh, I, I'd say the single most exciting thing in our ecosystem that's going live this year is as we launch in the United States, which is, which is our first real geographic expansion, we're doing that on the back of an acquisition that we made that the only company in the world that can efficiently convert existing ATMs to become digital asset ATMs. So it follows the exact same process. You put your card in, it says, Right now, those machines ask you, what do you want to do today? It's like, withdraw cash. It's like, why did you bother asking? It's the only one-trick pony. 
Now it'll say buy digital assets, and then it'll have a list of assets. And then that'll load, and that'll print out a QR code that you can load directly into a CoinScore account. And then at that point, you actually got um, digital assets that have come through a process that you're very familiar with, which will, I think, enable a major on-ramp. And we've got about 20,000 machines in the U.S. under contract, and I expect that number to go up, and hopefully we'll get 20,000 or more integrated this year. But the really sexy part is when you can actually go back to the machine. And based on what you have in your wallet, you can tell the machine spit out you know, this amount of Bitcoin in cash and get cash out. So what we'll actually end up having is a full service, independent digital bank. And that'll be the foundation for what we start to layer services on in the future. And you know, that's one, and when I really get excited about this market, I think of, wow, look at this amazing stuff that we're working on. And then I think, oh my God, how much more amazing stuff is going on around the world with those companies that have truly been building really unique solutions in this space that has this interconnectivity that's about to um, basically pan out a plan that sounds fairly similar to what I read in Alex's book. So I think the roaring 2020s, I'm aligned with you, Alex. Um, we are, uh, are going to be disrupting financial services. And it's going to be painful because we've got major regulatory challenges and we've got big players in the market that are going to want to block us at every turn that we make. But um, I, think, uh, I think we're in a position now to come out much stronger and I think we're in a position to finally be able to win. And so it's not about Bitcoin anymore um, on its own. It really is about blockchain. It really is about widening of digital assets. On that note, I do think Bitcoin's going to fucking explode this time. <laughs> so grab an account at CoinSquare. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, duly noted. Thank you. Um, so let's look out even further down the road, 2030. So what is CIBC? Is CIBC still around? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> CIBC will still be around. I hope so. I have uh, They will. They'll buy us. And I have a few accounts there. So. I can make this happen. Yeah, that'd be good. I'd like to be my own bank, but I also <laughs> like CIBC to be my bank. Um, so, but tell us, what's, what is, you know, people generally tend to um, overestimate the potential of technology in the sh very short term, but underestimate it in the very long term, right? Um, we see this, you know, Harris spoke about the internet boom that happened in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Mark Andreessen said recently that basically every crazy dot-com idea today would work. They'd be totally functioning companies. But at the time, there was no mobile web, there was no GPS, there was no cloud, there was no 4G, 5G, and so forth. So these ideas were kind of moot. What, and even I, pets.com was worth $220 a share? <laughs> I said they would work. I didn't say they'd be <laughs> worth billions of dollars. I have a pet. I have an internet connection. Sign me up. Uh, okay. No. Um, so thinking sort of long term, putting on that creative hat, not thinking about the constraints, whether they're regulatory or market or um, business based or what have you. What What do you think the bank looks like in ten years? You know, ten years is not a lot of time to be honest. And knowing how the bank kind of moves, I hope that we have solved a lot of our cross-border transfers, things like that, and made it more efficient. And I think a lot of the operational issues that we have today there will be some level of blockchain solution behind solving those. One of the things that we say in the book, um, the original book, was that an implementation challenge of blockchain is that it could be a job killer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember listening <clears throat> to the CEO of a big five bank say that um, in 10 years, the bank doesn't plan to have any tellers. It's amazing that there still are tellers, but there are tellers. It's fine. Um, but how does he tell those 3,000 people that they're going to have to be retrained or they may be out of work? Um, is that something that 
factors in it all <clears throat> into your thinking. Um, the potential that, you know, there's creative destruction that happens with technology. New jobs get created, new businesses, new value, and so forth. But there's also just destruction. Yeah. Um, so how do you think about that? I think there are more meaningful roles available for people. Um, we have had similar issues trying to adopt uh, AI and machine learning into the bank as well. And there's been impact to people's jobs through that as well. Mm -hmm. And it just gives them a, a different opportunity to retrain people and put them in more meaningful roles. Yeah. Okay, Richard, um, 10 years out, what is the security, let's not talk about CSE, let's talk about, what does the securities market look like? Do we still have broker-dealers, exchanges, are there custodians, uh, do people custody their own assets, are they everywhere, are they anywhere, how does the, what does the brave new world of, of um, the securities market look like in a decade? It's probably going to look more like it does now than a lot of other areas that blockchain is going to impact mm. uh, for the reason that makes coal grind its teeth at night, which is the regulation. Right? The, the notion of how heavily regulated the issuance and trading of securities mm -hmm. is so deeply ingrained into uh, you know, our laws and regulatory system that, and it is so far behind uh, what the technology is in a position to deliver at this point, that there will continue to be a requirement for some kind of intermediary mm -hmm. uh, who takes on a gatekeeper role uh, from a variety of perspectives. Just to, to pause you there, um, is there a requirement because customers want that, or is there a requirement because government is mandating that? I, I'm probably going to get into trouble here, but we've got enormous securities regulation bureaucracies in North America mm -hmm. that are going to fight like hell uh, to protect their position, and there's a whole lobby group in support of that. Again, I'm not smart enough to know whether that's the right approach or the wrong approach, and if there's anybody here from the OSC, we can talk afterwards and kiss and make up. <laughs> but um, the, uh, you know, that, that is going to drive innovation, I think, into a more what you would think of as conventional arrangement. Um, I do believe very uh, strongly, as uh, no great surprise, in the benefit of centralizing the price discovery system. Right? That having the, the, the problem that you see with private equity, venture capital, and all these sorts of private investments is people can make up all kinds of stuff when it comes to the valuation of those assets. Right? Mm -hmm. WeWork can do a $5 million offering three weeks before they try to do a, a public offering and say, well, our last round was done at, uh, you know, that's crap. Mm -hmm. right? The central market, you know, where all of the, the, the buyers and sellers are coming together to price that instrument is really the most efficient way of, uh, of, 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 of managing that price discovery system. So again, I believe passionately that there will continue to be a role for these sort of central organizations to provide that price discovery mm -hmm. mechanism. What I think is great is that the technology can democratize the investment process and eliminate a lot of the, the, the friction and the barriers and so on, which ultimately makes it, again, a more efficient process because more capital is being brought into that, uh, into that system. So that, that may be hopeful as opposed to what I expect to happen, but that's certainly what we're working towards. Okay, Cole, 10 years out, where do you see the world? Uh, rising oceans. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, you know, from a, from a blockchain and digital asset perspective, you're gonna see some economies around the world that have struck gold like we've never seen before. And none of you are going to be surprised to hear me say this, but by introducing the regulatory structures that attract entrepreneurs from around the world in order to create 
the next Switzerland, but times like 100. Um, and there'll probably be smaller geographies that are in a position to pivot that have learned from a lot of the work that we've seen over the past few years um, and hopefully put those structures in place this year and next year so they've got several years to run. I still have hope that Canada can be one of those economies. Mm -hmm. um, I work really, really hard every day with a specific objective, not in CoinSquare's interest, but in Canada's interest. Because if I work in Canada's interest, by default, it's CoinSquare's interest. Um, but um, I do believe that you're going to see a true revolution in terms of the way finances are managed this decade. Um, I can't tell you what that's going to look like at the end of 10 years, and I agree with your comment that 10 years is not a long time. That's not just the perspective of trying to get things done in the bank. Right? It's trying to get things done throughout the system. Um, but once you've got the right structure in place, mm -hmm. the ability for growth in an already connected market with the sort of opportunity that presented in, in, uh, by blockchain technology and digital assets, and the coming together of assets under one umbrella with the ability to be able to transfer them locally, globally, for payments, remittance, merchant services, et cetera. Um, once that is got the right regulatory framework backed by the right technology, and the technology is almost there. Mostly it's just user interfaces now that need to be connected appropriately to make it work, and obviously the right regulatory structure. But as soon as it's there at the right time, it's connected, and it's live, and adoption will be enormous. And that, you know, going back to Libra, is why I'm so excited about what Libra can offer our market. And the earlier that it does that in the 2020s, the better we are set up to see massive disruption of financial services through this decade. Okay. Um, and it's important, too, that we get this right in Canada. I mean, Canada's thrived for a century because of its natural resources and because of its proximity to the United States, the biggest trading market um, in the world by a large, large margin. Uh, but those two things are becoming a little less certain. And you know, if anything, if we're going to chart a path for the next century, it's not going to be based on pulling things out of the ground, at least not exclusively, though that's, I think that's important. Um, it's going to come from um, harnessing human capital and creating value in the digital economy. And I think we need the right government policy, we need the right regulatory um, rules, and we need entrepreneurs to be unfettered and unshackled to make that happen. So I'm uh, in agreement and alignment with all three of you on that point, and um, cautiously optimistic about the future. Okay, that uh, concludes the panel. Uh, we're going to open it up to some questions for the floor. We have about 10 minutes to do that, and then we're going to uh, hang out and relax. So I believe we have a microphone just at the back there that's being passed around, and feel free to ask questions. Hi there. What, what's your name, young lady? Hi. <laughs> I'm Jenna Pilgrim. Um, I am an entrepreneur in Canada. Um, and this question is specifically for Fatima. Um, with the uh, CSA's ruling, um, uh, commercial banking, access to commercial banking for specifically crypto startups um, in Canada has been either halted or significantly delayed. What do you believe the role is of the commercial bank um, and what are you going to do about this so that companies like mine can have banking services, which we don't have right now? No pressure, right? Um, I think there is an opportunity here for us to come together and advocate for what's right. And at, at, at no point do we want to be in a situation where Canadian businesses are being halted and you're not getting the support that you require. So we all have a role to play in advocating for what's right. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, Can I have a bank account? Yeah. 
I'm sorry? Can I have a bank account? Of course you can have a bank account. Great. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. For CoinSquare. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, questions? Other questions? Come on. There's one right there at the back. Uh, hi, my name's Jay. I work uh, in the finance industry, focused on tech. Uh, this is a question for Cole. Uh, you were mentioning about Libra, about, and I agree with you that this is a huge opportunity for Facebook. They have a huge base, and something really cool that they're creating. What would you do differently than Mark Zuckerberg for introducing Libra? Very open question, but. No, 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 I, and, I, and, and I won't fully answer the question, because that would take hours. Uh, but what I would say, is, the first thing I would have done is I would have changed the approach. Um, especially at the time that they came out with it, is I wouldn't have said cryptocurrency. Um, and I have no problem with the term, uh, except that to a lot of people it just sounds scary. Uh, so I thought that the approach in, in, in which they introduced it was off, uh, which stifled their ability to, to be able to move quickly on it. The second thing I would have done is I would have not had a basket of currencies. Now that's an idea that we had three years ago at CoinScore, like the first idea that my partner and I, Virgil, had Let's introduce a stable coin. Let's make it a basket of international currencies and even have some Bitcoin in there, some Ether in there, some gold in there, et cetera. Um, but I think that at the scale that Facebook's doing it, that's a fundamental problem because, again, then it screams threat to the U.S. Federal Reserve and therefore the U.S. government. So what I would have done instead, you could very easily have an engine that's connected underneath to say, in the U.S. it'll be U.S. dollars, in, in Europe it'll be Euro, et cetera, et cetera, around the world. Um, and I think that that would have had a material difference not just in terms of getting approval to be able to move it forward, but also in people's ability to understand the value of each unit, okay? Um, and I think that there might be a tremendous amount of confusion when it comes to market. To me, those are the two big problems with it. Um, and, and I actually think that they can both be solved, um, but, and everything else underneath it is not that material, and at the end of the day, it'll be successful for our market and at least some degree of success probably short, at least short to medium term for Facebook. And if they can figure out the right model, then maybe they do end up becoming the world's bank. I don't know. But those two fundamental problems have to be solved. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we've not spoken to Mark Zuckerberg, but we speak to the guys who speak to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> he is obsessed with where do Facebook's next billion and a half customers come from? Right? That, that is his, that when he wakes up in the morning, he's trying to think, where do those next billion and a half customers come from? And as Cole laid out, uh, introducing uh, this digital currency um, is, is, has a gigantic potential audience in Africa and South Asia and the Middle East. And that's where his next billion and a half customers potentially come from. And those people are unbanked or underbanked. Um, Facebook is also investing in uh, satellite uh, capability to enhance uh, access to uh, internet services in these places as well as solar-powered uh, uh, cell towers, uh, again, to be able to provide uh, 3G services in some of the you know, remote parts of India and sub-Saharan Africa and all of that stuff. But that's exactly the, the, the service that they need to get into those places to have them become Facebook customers. Hmm. So that's exactly what, that's what's driving the, uh, the, the move here is, again, his obsession to get the next billion and a half Facebook users. And it's, a, it's an absolute... Uh, I mean, it's a great strategy. It may not have been well executed, but, uh, but I think it's, it's exactly the service those people need. Yeah, I think time, time will tell on, on Libra, for sure. Uh, but I think at this point, the, the cat is out of the bag. If it's not Libra, it's going to be someone else. And honestly, um, the US um, 
the government, and specifically Congress, who's been the hardest critics. Um, if you look at the, the, the hearings that Zuckerberg was, uh, and David Marcus were subjected to, um, they should be careful about banning something like this outright, because if it's not Facebook, it'll be uh, Tencent or Alipay, and it will not be um, with the resistance of the government, it will be with the uh, explicit backing and support of the regime in China. And you have to ask yourself, you know, do you want American corporate champions innovating in those markets, or do you want the Chinese? Um, and you know, you may have a differing of opinions there, but I certainly have uh, strong views on that. Um, other questions? Hi there. I've got two uh, questions. One's directed to uh, Cole. Uh, first question would be, and then the second question directed to the panel. First question on the uh, regulation of uh, digital assets. Are there any lessons that CoinScore can take from uh, Fred's case with the OSC? And the second question is just in regards to the OSC's collabor collaboration with the FCA. Obviously, the UK's been a leader in terms of fintech, so can there be some types of uh, integration or work that comes out of that uh, relationship that can spearhead growth within the uh, space of, within Canada? I think I missed a key word in your first question. Can you say it again? Yeah, just in regards to the regulation of digital assets, are there any lessons from Fred's case with respect Fred, to 3IQ that uh, you guys can undertake? IC3. Oh, um, I wouldn't say that there is any lessons from that case that we could take. I would say that um, even though the CSA guidance that recently came out, and the CSA guidance that came out, what it really says is we want to solve for problems where exchanges are going to disappear with all your money. Right? Well, that happened. It was called Quadriga. They're gone and over with, right? And like I'm out in the open. Our office is at 590 King Street. Our balances have been vetted. And yeah, we have 23 competitors across the country and God knows how many international exchanges that are dealing with Canadian customers, but that doesn't do very much. Um, what really needs to happen in the next phase of the process is for them to finally introduce this new regulatory structure, which they've told me they've been working on now for two years and studying the market for longer than that, which is why the guidance that came out that basically says, well, forget the new regulatory framework, you're just all subject to existing securities regulations is troubling at the moment. We haven't fully diligenced it yet. Every law firm on Bay Street is working on our behalf to try and you know, fix that problem. Um, but inevitably, the win is gonna come from getting that framework in place, and I think what the OSC has come to realize is that coming up against our market is not the wise choice. Figuring out a way to partner with us is the wiser choice. And that's maybe what they learned from the Fred scenario, but I don't really know. You have a changing of the guard now with Marine stepping down. We don't really know who's gonna be in charge next, and that will have an impact. I'm happy that it's under a conservative government because they seem to be a little bit more pro-business pro than, uh, than the prior, but you know, time will tell in my business right now, and therefore I think the future of blockchain tech in this country is heavily reliant upon regulators. That's a little bit terrifying, not because of the people, but because of the structure, not because of the people of the regulators, but because of the structure of regulatory bodies. So we'll see, but I'm very optimistic. And, uh, and it's good that they lost that case with Fred. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we'll see whether they actually learn anything from it. Other questions? Um, I'll just add to, to Cole's answer on that. So um, the Internet of Information, the first era of the Internet, um, thrived because it had some implicit government support, um, and it was lightly regulated. And that's like largely because uh, information industries 
are just more lightly regulated than financial services are. So there was a, the Telecommunications Act was introduced in the 1990s in the United States, which laid out the rules for internet service providers and so forth uh, who are hosting other people's material, um, which allowed them to grow and scale and not be responsible if you know someone was sending some illicit images across the internet as a service provider, you were not liable as a company, which I think on balance is a very good thing. Um, but with, uh, with, with financial services, very different. I mean, you know, when you're talking about banking, insurance, asset management, and so forth, there are lots of rules and regulations that are in place. But the, the, the central challenge, as I see it, is that um, technology moves a lot faster than governments do. Um, and oftentimes, people in government lack the resources or the wherewithal uh, to keep up with it. And I, so I think, um, at, the, at the same time, I think it's important. So the way that you address that is by working with the private sector, uh, working with leaders in industry who are trying to build these companies to find the right path forward. I know Cole's done an excellent job um, and has put in a lot of time in educating the people in government to help create this new and better system for Canada. And I, for one, uh, certainly hope that he succeeds. And I think it will be to the benefit of everybody on this panel and, and everybody in this room. Um, so that's the end of my diatribe. OK, uh, that concludes the, the panel discussion. Um, thank you all very much. A big round of applause for our three panelists. And thank, thank you all for attending. And uh, I hope to see you at the bar momentarily. Thank you very much. Yeah. One sec, I'm going to ask Mike Williams, the General Manager of Economic Development and Con uh, Culture from the City of Toronto to come up to offer appreciation. Yeah, sorry, Mike. <laughs> so now I'm stuck between you and the bar. No, now, no, no, so. no, 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 no. We're, very, we're very fortunate and lucky to have so, you. So uh, first of all, congratulations to the panel. I go to a lot of places with a lot of panels, a lot of events. That is the most content-rich uh, panel that I've ever seen, I think, so congratulations. I <clears throat> also want to thank the Empire Club. They're an important institution in Toronto for the last 117 years uh, in terms of idea sharing, so congratulations to them for hosting this event. I also have to say that I feel very intimidated because I don't understand blockchain, okay? <laughs> I've read two books, including one that Alex and Don read, wrote, and I sort of, sort of understand, but then I got on an Airbus 380 the other day. That's that uh, huge jet with or a huge plane with two complete um, stories in, in their plane. Um, also, don't understand electricity and how these lights work. Um, but uh, I got on the plane, and I do flick switches to put the lights on uh, in my house. And so I may be too stupid to understand blockchain, but I'm not. I'm smart enough to support the concept and support what the city can do to help uh, profligate it in a, in a responsible fashion. And so we're members of the BRI. Uh, we think it's really important for there to be a center where uh, all aspects of the sector can get together and talk and research and learn about it. Hopefully somebody will figure out one page, uh, blockchain for dummies kind of thing for me. Uh, but it, it's, it's going to bring huge change, and I agree with all the speaker, speakers on that. Uh, we've seen countless times this happens, so this is not something new. It happens all the time. But from a city perspective, a couple of comments that during, this, during the, the discussion, especially near the end, that blockchain will be completely disruptive, 
means that there are a lot of people going to get disrupted. So we need to make sure that we can do all we can to help it grow, but also help uh, the disruption sides of it. And so we'll focus on some of that. Um, I like the democratization of what blockchain can bring, because that'll help. Uh, we have a city that's increasingly becoming uh, the two ends of the economic spectrum, and any tool that'll help uh, ameliorate that uh, would be great. Anyway, thanks, Alex, very much. I look forward to reading your book, and uh, thank you all for coming. Wonderful. So this, this proves that uh, the concept of Empire Nights is right, which is put uh, smart people on the stage and have a, have a penetrating discussion and, uh, and then and I'm not going to stand in your way of uh, then having uh, some beer and drinks to talk it all over. Uh, I will say to this group, because I think that you might be interested in it, in disruption, uh, we do have an a event going on uh, parallel to the auto show on electric vehicles that is taking place. Uh, another area that I think uh, has huge potential and, and could be equally interesting for you. Check it out on our website. Thank you very much. This meeting is adjourned.